It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Our guest today is CEO Rick Kornbluth. Rick's a senior executive with multi-industry experience and a proven track record growing consumer personal care businesses. He currently serves as CEO of Kevin Murphy, an international manufacturer of professional hair care and hair coloring products. Previously, he was president and CEO of Wella Corporation, a division of Procter & Gamble. Rick Kornbluth, welcome into the corner office. Grant, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm uh, really honored to be part of this program. Well, it's wonderful to have you here today, Rick. And, you know, wanted just to start with some of the highlights of your bio. Uh, you've had a real interesting background. We talked a little bit about that before we started. Uh, we overlapped at Procter & Gamble at different parts in our career, but you were a longtime employee of the uh, Wella Corporation, uh, going up through several different senior management locations, uh, and I guess different locations as well as responsibilities, right? Or were you in one location the entire time? Actually, uh, I was at my company, Graham Webb, I was a shareholder in, was acquired by Wella in 2001. And so I was with Wella for a little over a year when P&G made their acquisition. And that then started the, the merry-go-round where I took on various roles within the organization um, and then ultimately left the company in 2007. Got it. Got it. Cool. And you've been CEO of Kevin Murphy uh, since then. When did you join that organization? I joined the organization in middle 2007, and we actually launched the North American business in January of 2008. Fantastic. Terrific. Well, let's start back at the beginning, and we always like to kind of talk about the early years. Uh, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and you know, what your family life was like. Uh, I grew up in Encino, California. I had two sisters, both of them were older. I was uh, very, very active in sports, and I had a hugely imagined, a hugely vivid imagination. Uh, at one point in time or another, I was Superman, I was a <laughs> shepherd, I was a fireman. Um, you know, I would role play a bunch of different things, and, and that was, you know, more or less my early youth. And then... Awesome, got awesome. And a couple older sisters, did they, did they mother you a lot as well? Was it like having three moms growing up? It was interesting. They were... A little bit older, so there was like a five-year age different, and so they weren't. They were really into their own things for the most part. We had a pretty close family, but um, I had a, a bunch of friends. Our next-door neighbors had eight kids, and that played a little bit of a role later on in my childhood that we might get into. 
Tell me about your parents, uh, mom and dad working, professional, stay at home. What were their uh, careers? My father uh, was a, a physician, and he was a physician's physician. He was one of the last people that I'm aware of as a doctor that did house calls. He also trained uh, first-year students, medical students at USC, and was a, really a pr- brilliant physician, super, super bright. My mom was, um, you know, took care of us, raised us. Um, the caregiver amongst. And um, so I, my childhood was uh, a pretty good childhood. I was very yeah, lucky. happy one. Encino in the uh, Los Angeles area. So kind of back to your roots in Southern California or have you been there, I guess, most of your career, correct? As well, it was also uh, in California, were they not? I had a brief stint in, um, in Ohio. I went to work for Matrix, which at the time was an independently owned large professional a hair care company based in Solon, Ohio. So I spent 93 to 97 in Ohio. But other than that, I've been in California. Who were else uh, or who who or what else were some of the early influencers in your life? Any, uh, you mentioned sports, any coaches or teachers that you remember that, you know, had a, had a touch on you? Uh, I remember my high school um, history teacher. And I just, it's one of those things that kind of sticks into your mind. He, at the beginning of the year, set up a grading scale, and like a quiz was worth 5,000 points and tests were 20,000 points. And his rationale was, at the end of the year, I don't want anybody coming up to me and saying, you know, I missed an A by (laughs) 13,000 points. Because it kind of sounds ridiculous. And I just thought that was a very creative way to handle the situation. Yeah, very smart. (laughs) I love it. And uh, was that one of your favorite subjects? Uh, I was really a science math guy. Uh, he just uh, was one of those people that you remember, and um, and I remember it fondly. And it's just an anecdote that kind of sits back in the back of my mind and pops up at t- you know from here to there. But uh, no, he he, Mr. Ramirez. But uh, math and science were really my math, science, and sports were my, were my specialties. Were you a pretty good student, Rick? It's interesting. I, my mom makes fun of this. I, I was, I would say, an average student until tenth grade, and tenth grade it started to count because that's what counted towards college. And all of a sudden, you know, I became a very good student, and she just shook <laughs> her head and wondered what happened. And it was like it was very simple. It, it was time to focus and get serious. You turned it on when you had to. Exactly. <laughs> so apparently, I retained enough in the prior years, um, and I maybe probably had to work a little bit harder tenth through twelfth. Um, because I didn't focus as early on as I probably should have, but it, it worked out for the best. What were some of your favorite sports, uh, you know, middle school, high school? I was um, on the golf team, and I also um, was very involved in sailboat racing. Um, ultimately, later on, it became almost a profession. Well, it was a profession for a number of years, and um, I was uh, very involved in the U.S. sailing you know, organization, I, I was captain of the sailing team at UC Irvine. I was involved with a company where we supplied a lot of the, the hardware and was involved in a bunch of America's Cups. So uh, that was a big part of my youth. Great. A lot, a lot of competition then. Did you do any long-distance sailing races, those types of things? I did. A, a number of trips up and down the coast to Mexico, a couple of transpacs to Hawaii. And, you know, it's interesting. I think that when I became... I, I was pretty young for most of the people on the boat um, and the various different boats I raced on. And, and generally, I was like a watch captain or something like that. So I think you know, it kind of started off 
learning how to manage people because I was, you know, managing a watch that generally were people older than I. Um, and so it was, it was building their trust in me. And, you know, when you're going from here to Hawaii, uh, there are some times when it gets pretty sketchy out there and, and you really need to trust one another. So I think that was early on part of my um, leadership development. Awesome. Teenage years then, Rick, when you were doing those trips? Yeah, it was um, up until it uh, started probably when I was 12 or 13. And then through college, um, I did the 79 Transpack and the 81 Transpack. So it was uh, it was a lot of fun and a yeah, great experience. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, that probably took up a lot of your time. Anything else uh, from a creative standpoint? Music, theater, arts, anything like that interests you? No. And you talk to my wife, and she says, <laughs> "You know, I've got the analytical side, but somewhere in there, <clears throat> somewhere in there, there's I, I'm somewhat creative, but uh, you know, when it comes to ultimately marketing departments and art departments, I know well enough to to leave <laughs> most of my opinions to myself." Uh, because sometimes I've, I've voiced my opinions and they look at me like I have five heads. And so I know where my, where my place is. Were you doing any entrepreneurial things when you were growing up? If so, what? Um, actually, no. I, I, my like entrepreneurial paper routes or anything like that or anything, you know, spending money as a kid? I was a spoiled, rotten kid. I, I, uh, my parents really took care of me as I was growing up. And I, you know, again, did a lot of sailing and golfing. Um, I uh, had a few little odd jobs here and there through high school, but they weren't really serious. And um, I think when my entrepreneurial started was actually my senior year in college, my brother-in-law owned Playgirl magazine. And he put me in a position doing this book club. And it was one of the things that, you know, from a knowledge base or from, you know, my experience base, it was way beyond the responsibility was way beyond what I deserved, but it allowed me to take risks and to just do things and to interact with different people, trips to New York, meeting with book publishers, et cetera. And um, because I had no reason to not do it, I just went ahead and did and asked for various different things because I didn't know better. And I thought, you know, that was an interesting experience for sure. So um, you decided to go to college. Was that kind of a foregone conclusion because of dad's, you know, medical background? Did your older sisters go? What was kind of the, you know, the thinking growing up in the, uh, in the Cornbluth household, so to speak? It, it was a foregone conclusion. It was um, all of us went to school. Interesting. I, I went to UC Irvine and I chose that uh, undergraduate school because I felt it was very strong in pre-med and I was going to be a doctor. And my senior year after high school, between high school and, um, and joining and starting college, I worked for the radiology lab um, at the hospital. And I realized then that I would be a horrible doctor. And, and the reason <laughs> is uh, I, I'm a pretty um, emotional person and I relationships are really important to me. And I just felt like, you know, I would get so personally involved with each of my patients that I wouldn't make a good doctor. And I remember having a, you know, sitting down with my dad and having a conversation and because I thought he would want me to become a doctor and he was thrilled because the medical profession was no longer what he got into. And so um, that started me towards business and I switched my 
majored a political science with a minor in economics at UCI. Got it. Got it. So you stayed there all, uh, all four years at UCI? I did. And then what was that first job you had out of college? Uh, Playgirl Magazine. Okay, got it. That was the entrepreneurial that opportunity, was that. right? And then I did a few, few. I worked for a few different companies. Um, I, I worked for a, a company that did binders, and I was involved in um, basically on the creative side of that company, looking at the various, at the time, it was separations, the way they printed. Right, sure. digital. Yeah, color sets. Exactly. Right, sure. So I went through that. Then I joined um, with this professional, you know, this sailboat hardware company where I, I got pretty involved. involved and I love, I love going to travel all around the you know, country, the world, you know, sailing, sailing, racing, meeting different people. Definitely that was a situation where, you know, this, you know, at the time I was really, I was early twenties, young kid comes on the boat and, and I was kind of the quote unquote rock star. And, you know, I joined these teams that, you know, had been sailing together for years and they were kind of looking at me and who's, you know, who's this young kid <laughs> who's coming on. Kid on the block, right. And I would commit to certain races and, and that was really, really fun. My wife was an actress on, on days of our lives. Um, and pretty active doing that, and we decided to settle down and have a family. So I answered an ad in the LA Times to be a, um, to do the advertising, manage the advertising, be an account executive for a trade magazine in the professional salon industry. And that's how I got into our industry. So any, uh, you know, kind of early leadership responsibilities, uh, you know, do you remember the first time you started managing people, for example? You know, I think it, it really does go back to the, you know, being on the sailboat. So at an early age, uh, and that developed. And for me, I think it's important as you grow up in an organization, every day you're developing your style. I mean, to this day, I still develop it. It's, you know, and it's seen good and bad, you, you know, various people, everybody has their own style. And I think mine is for sure a blend of um, people that I thought were really good managers and developed people and were visionaries and those that, um, you know, chose to do things a lot different than I would, but I saw exactly how, how that would develop. So, you know, management wise, I think, uh, really started when, um, I left the magazine and I went to Lonza. It was the first and only time I've ever been fired in my life. Um, I was there. <laughs> For eight months, it's a funny story. Um, I was there for eight months, and they really, I, I had developed a network of, of distributor friends, and Lonzo was looking to build their distribution, and they brought me on to head up their marketing department. But what was interesting is, after eight months, the owner of the company called me in. He's since passed away. And he said, Rick, you're just not flaky enough for this company. Ah! <laughs> oh my goodness. That was part of the hiring criteria. <laughs> and I've been working on my flaky skills ever since. Um, I think they're getting better. Oh, that's but, too yeah, funny. I was fired for not being flaky enough. And, you know, years later, we'd meet up at various different industry functions and kind of have a giggle about it. But, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that was the beginning that was an of inter interesting prerequisite during those years. Though. There you go. Yep. Well, you mentioned the owner of the company. Any lessons you'd like to share from some of the past, you know, bosses and mentors 
good or bad. You know, sometimes it's that bad example that uh, teaches you the most, but anything uh, you can recall from your past. There are a few. I, I remember when I left Lonza, I went to work for this company, Image Labs, and the, the owner of the company um, had basically a deal the president of the company had a deal, he had a minor ownership in it, where he would buy the company on a certain date based on you know, some kind of multiple of revenue and profits. And he literally chose to drive the company on the verge of bankruptcy so as to buy it <laughs> at a low Come price. Up to that time, right, right. The challenge was, uh, unfortunately, when it all kind of came together, he couldn't dig it back out once he got there. And he was one of these people that you'd sit in a meeting and somebody would say, I think we should call this product blue. And he'd go, that's a really stupid idea. And conversation would happen. <laughs> and he would say, wait a minute, I got an idea. We should call this product blue. And everybody would look at him and go, that is a great name. God, how did you come up with that? And so, you know, I learned you know, that was a lesson of, of, you know, you've got to give people credit for their ideas and acknowledge them because uh, it was pretty demoralizing for most people on the team. I, I also Very dysfunctional, worked, too. It was. Oh, my God. Um, and then I had the opportunity a, a few years later, um, Robert Taylor, who has since passed away, was, uh, was voted the um, worst employer in the Twin Cities like two years in a row. Because he was a triple type A personality and he would literally, you know, take his forefinger and pound it in your chest to make a point. Oh my gosh. But he hired me out of I know what one of those A's stand for, right? (laughs) (laughs) He was, you know, he, I was director of marketing at Matrix um, when he called me up and said, I'd like you to be president of the company. And um, I took on Graham Webb. It was a relatively small company at the time, doing about $25 million in revenue. And for about six months, you know, he worked with me. And then he uh, came in one day and he said, uh, I'm going to California. I'll be, gone. I'll be gone for a bit. And I said, great. You know, when will you be back? And he goes, well, the winter's coming. I'll be back in six months. And, <laughs> yeah, and literally he never really came back. He just kind of turned the company. I would talk to him only almost on a daily basis, but you know, he, he gave me a foundation and then literally threw me out of the nest. And, um, you know, every once in a while I would point out those are Bogan via. You would like to try to miss them as you come down out of the nest. <laughs> um, every once in a while he would point out, uh, I should go this way, throwing me right into a rock or something like that. But, um, he was an amazing person to learn both the good and bad. His attention to detail was was unbelievable. And probably one of the biggest aha uh-huh, early learning points, and this was, you know, 93, uh, no, I'm sorry, 90, 97, um, uh, that one of my first days in the company, there was a meeting and I had the management team and there were six people on this team and three people presented a concept that they just felt really strongly on. And the other three people felt the opposite. And I remember thinking to myself, times that I had been in meetings with different companies and sat there and thought, how, how can the president or CEO or whomever not see how 
easy this decision is. I mean, there's just, it's not even, there's no choice. You've got to go this direction. And how can he see the other side? And all of a sudden, for the first time in my career, it came down, they, they all looked at me. And I remember- So you got to make the decision, right? Yeah. I, I did. And I excused myself and I went to the restroom and I just sat there and I thought, oh my God, you know, it's not as easy as you think. <laughs> and then I just realized, you've got to do what you believe is right. And so I came back in and it started one of my philosophies as a, as a manager um, at the time I was the president of this company. And that was when we go into a meeting, everybody leaves their, their titles at the door and we go in and everybody fights like hell for what they believe in. And, you know, whatever it takes to get your point across, at the end of the meeting, we're going to make a decision. And the one thing that I demanded is when we all left, we met, left unified on a decision. And if it was not the decision you wanted, you know, I, I wouldn't tolerate. And people knew they couldn't walk out and say, oh, God, we made a stupid decision. Or let's say it was a stupid decision. And we found that out six months later. We didn't allow people to say, I told them that was a really stupid idea. It was like, you know what? Everybody was heard. We as a group made this decision. We owned it. We screwed up. Let's fix it and move forward. But, you know, you get heard, but then we make a decision and move forward. And, and that was a big part of my management style. Rick, how would you say your leadership styles evolved over time? I think that those, those kind of core principles have stayed with me. Uh, I think another thing that I have learned Two other big things I've learned, I think. Um, number one, hire people better than you are. If you surround yourself with great people, it's amazing what that does for the organization and yourself. And I think there are too many people that are afraid of surrounding themselves with really good people that may make them not look good. Um, but the reality is, if you build a team around you that is better than you are, and then the next important thing is, you've got to let them do their job. So if you hire a CFO and he's really, really, or she is really, really good at their, their role, um, don't jump in there and say, you know what, I want you to do it this way or that way. You've hired them to do their job, and, and there may be things you want to see in a certain way, but I think the important thing is you hire people better than you and you let them do their job. And the other thing from a customer-facing um, and your employment, your team facing, I, uh, whenever I get up in front of a crowd, I make them two promises. Uh, one is, and I've done this for 15 years, 20 years now. Number one, I'll, I'll never, ever lie to anybody. I, I just think, you know, it's a, it's a statement you can throw out there and means nothing until, you know, somebody knows you for five, six, 10 years or your reputation of an honest person gets out there. It's very easy. Once, once you lie to somebody, you know, you've destroyed your reputation. And I think, you know, waking up in the morning every day and looking in that mirror is an incredible, important, incredibly important thing to do for, for long-term longevity and growth. And I also commit that whenever I make a commitment, I'll do everything in my power to live up to that. Very different. There's hedge words in there versus I will never ever. And I think, you know, in any person's role, you can make a commitment, but sometimes there are just things out of your realm of control that you, you know, may cause you to, to not live up to that commitment, but I will die trying. Um, 
and I ask for one thing in return, and that is brutal honesty. I think you know, everybody wants to hear how great they are or how great the company is. Um, that doesn't really help anybody. It's the credible, thoughtful comments on, have you thought about this? Or have you looked into this idea? Um, maybe you should think about doing this a little differently. Those are the things that make you better as a person and better as a manager and better as a company. So it's, it's my trade-off for being very honest with people um, and doing everything I can to live every commitment I make. Um, I, I really, um, I ask for people to be honest with me. And I think you have to go that next step because a lot of people say, you know, I really want you to be honest with me, but they don't want to hear it. And so when they hear criticism, which is meant to make, at least allow you to think. You may not even agree after you hear it. You may say, you know, there's a reason for not t doing that or not taking that direction. But you can't be defensive because then people will not, going forward, be honest with you. You really have to embrace their comments and give it thought and get back to them as to why you're going to do it or not do it. Um, and I think it's a really good... I, I, th those three or four things, I think, have been an evolution of of how I, I manage this team here. That's really true, Rick, because it's you, you can't call integrity if you don't have both sides of honesty, right? That's you right. Know, you've got to be able to, to, you know, say it, say it like it is, but also be willing to hear, you know, <laughs> the stuff that's not very comfortable to hear. Um, but a true person who is full of integrity can, can say and do both. Right. And chew gum at the same time, hopefully as well. <laughs> I fail at that. I literally people make fun of me. Absolutely make fun of me. We would have conference calls or teleconference calls. And I I I'm a really focused individual. When I get distracted and try to do two things at once, I just fail. And and everybody <laughs> literally make fun of me. I'll be listening to a conversation and get sidetracked with an email. And somebody will ask me a question, and it will be, you know, what's one and one? And I'll say, uh, blue? <laughs> and they're like, Rick, are you getting coffee or typing something or doing something? We need you back. We need you yeah. back. Really, yeah. Rick, you've worked for some for some great companies, Wella, Procter, you know, multi-billion dollar companies. And now, you know, you're in the middle market. Uh, Kevin Murphy, of course, and the growth that they've had. Um, what are your thoughts on building a company culture, its importance? And, and you know, how do you do that where you are today? To me, culture is the important thing. I think that um, you know, in any industry, you know, I, I spent my life in the professional salon industry. I think that um, you know, in order to play, it's be in the game. You have to have good products, and I believe ours are the best. and And I mean that sincerely. I said I'd never lie to you. I do. I believe they're the best. But I would rather have a company with good products and great people than great products and, and fair to average to good people. Um, and I think that, you know, there's the expression that the fish stinks from the head down. That's I, true, yeah. It's a Chinese I, expression, actually. <laughs> it, it is something that I think as a CEO or a manager in a department, um, you have to own the culture and make sure that um, everybody understands that culture. And in the interview process, I, you know, when somebody's interviewing in a senior, senior position to come into this company, I do not talk to them at all about, you know, if they're coming in to be a financial person or a marketing person, 
about what they've done in marketing. I want to know about them as a person because I'm assuming whoever is doing the, the hiring process and, and going through that has discussed with that individual, you know, their history, how they, you know, where they got to where they are and to make sure they were a good fit as far as bringing relevant um, information and talents to that position. I, I just want to know that they're going to fit in and enjoy working in the culture we have and participate in it and enhance it. And, um, and I think you find that out by finding out who the person is and it's less about what their work life is. I think it's more about, you know, you started off when we started talking a little bit about, you know, what was your family life growing up and what do you do in your spare time? How do you spend, you know, time away from work? And then when I do get into questions involving work, it's about, you know, how did you handle specific issues uh, and confrontations? You know, how did you deal with that? And, and what is your management and leadership style? Because I think if there's a disconnect between, you know, somebody joining the company and their style and the company, it's going to be disruptive to the organization. And I would, I would stay away from things like that. What would you say is unusual or, or unique about the Kevin Murphy culture? You know, what is it that you look for? Um, Don't say flakiness because I won't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to stink from the head down, and I'm I, I'm not a very <laughs> flaky person. Again, I'm trying to work on getting that better. There you go. <laughs> but I, I can't lead from there. Um, I, I think people will tell you, and it's it's really evident. Um, employees come in, new people, new employees come into this team. And they last 30 days or they never leave. And it's because we work really hard, but we play hard as well. And I think, um, you know, my belief is, you know, family is always first and, and will always be first for every employee. You know, on the other hand, not on the other hand, if there is not a family emergency or something going on, I expect people to, to get their job done. And I'm not, never going to look over their shoulder. I'm, you know, I, I, I don't care when they come and go. I just want to make sure that they live up to every commitment they make to their team um, and to other people in the company. And that just means head down and, and get the job done and, and, and do a really good job. But understand, we're going to have some fun along the way. Um, I, I love people that, you know, we try to go outside and get some fresh air. And, um, you know, I think that... This is such a cool industry because um, we're not curing we're not curing cancer or fixing the world issues, but at the end of the day, our our job is to help salon owners around the world um, become more successful, and their job every day is to make people feel better about themselves. And I love that, and I think that people joining this company have to understand, no matter what role they serve here. They're making people feel better every day. And um, I think that's a really powerful, motivating factor. What, what do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in? I think it's a, a great, um, a, a really good question. I, I, I look for them um, to have, you know, in their, their conversations, a, a strong family foundation. I look for them to have a, a very strong work ethic that they're not jumping, jumping around a lot. Um, that are looking for a long-term career because, you know, we want to be a long-term company. Um, I want somebody that would like upward mobility um, and that has built strong teams behind them. I think, you know, you 
come into a company on day one, I guess on day one, the first, first little bit, little bit, you really shouldn't say a lot, lot. you should kind of think around, figure out what's going on and learn about the company. Then, be fair to, to one of the things here that is important to everybody is, because we've done it one way forever, doesn't mean it's right. But don't come in on day one and say you shouldn't do it this way. You got to kind of understand why we do it that way. And then if you've got a better idea, bring it on. Um, but I also think that people, once they're in their job, need to start finding their replacement within their team um, because that allows them to grow in the organization. If they create you know, a wall around their department and around themselves, it doesn't allow anybody to grow. And I think um, upward mobility in any organization, in any department, is a huge motivating factor. Um, and I think the other thing I look for in people is people that recognize the talents of their team and want to share in their successes and promote their successes. If you only had about five minutes to interview someone, what, what would you ask them? I would ask them to tell me a little bit about themselves outside of their work environment. What is it that turns them on um, spiritually, emotionally? Um, you know, where do they go to, you know, to free and to recharge? Uh, and I think I would, um, the other one I'd ask is in their current role, what is their favorite thing to do and what's their least favorite? Um, I, if you can work with the person to get through some of the BS you might initially get, you really find out how they think in many ways and what, what parts of their job they enjoy because that's what they're going to focus on. And if, if um, you know, a salesperson, um, for example, um, you know, they hate the paperwork, but they love the interaction, to us, paperwork isn't a, a huge part of how we operate as a company. Relationships are the key. And so I would look at that and I would say, that's fantastic. If, if a, a different salesperson for the same job came in and said, oh, I love the analytics, portion of it. I like working with my customers and going through their sales reports and things like that. Um, but they're not really talking about building strong relationships and getting to know their customer. And it's all data, data, data. Probably not going to be a great fit for our company. We've got people to do the data piece. We want our salespeople to be the connector between our customers and, and our company. Right. Makes good sense. Uh, Ray Cornwell, you've been very, very generous with your time, but we have uh, one additional question. And it kind of relates to what you and I were talking about before we started the podcast. You know, we've got many of our audience here who, you know, have got their eyes on the C-suite or perhaps, you know, achieving the corner office like you have. And we always like to ask the CEOs, you know, what career and life advice would you give to someone who's got their eyes on the corner office? My advice is absolutely positively pick something you're passionate about. Um, and even if you say, you know, like you, you're really passionate about marketing, don't work for, if, if, if you're into beauty, um, don't work for, um, a company, that, uh, uh, a biotech company that isn't into beauty, that's into growing algae or something like that. I think the most important <laughs> thing, cause you spend more time in your career than you really do anything else, you know, unfortunately. Fortunately or unfortunately, and I think that you have to absolutely be passionate 
about what you do for a living to succeed in it and to get the best out of you. So, um, you know, pick a, a direction, whether it's marketing or sales or finance or, you know, customer service, you name it, that you're passionate about, but then specifically work in a, in a market that is of interest to you. And then you just got to put your head down and, and really work hard and build relationships. Um, they will serve you in the long run, um, you know, beyond your wildest dreams. Rick, thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office with us today. Really appreciate it, Brant. Thanks for your time. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.